Hello, my friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And this one, oh, fasten your seatbelts, because I'm with Susan David, who is, um, you're on the faculty of Harvard Medical School? I am. <laughs> Psychologist. <laughs> yes. Um, but doctor, what is your official doctor of? I did my PhD in the area of emotions. So I've got a PhD in emotions in psychology. Really? Yeah, I do indeed. You have a, PA, a PhD in emotions? Is that the technical term for it? Well, it's in the field of psychology, but all of my research has been on emotions and how emotions impact us in so many ways. <sighs> okay, so my friends, we're going to... Um, Susan has written this book, Emotional Agility, and we're going to get to the book at some point because, seriously, this book... Um, you're going you're gonna to see all these pages I have underlined because I'm like, oh, we're going to have to talk about this. We're going to have to talk about this. So I hope you have five hours. I've got five hours. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm always interested when people are doing work that clearly it moves them and so it moves us. I'm always interested in how, how they got to this. Um, and it's interesting to me that right away in the opening of the book, you talk about growing up in South Africa. Yes. And how that shaped you. It, it shaped me in huge ways. So I grew up in apartheid South Africa. And while I was a white South African, and therefore not subject to the same chaos and cruelty as so many of my fellow South Africans, it was nonetheless a time of great trauma. So when I was growing up, as an example, as a female in South Africa, your statistical chance of being raped was higher than your chance of learning how to read and write. And a lot of psychologists... As a, as a white? As a female in as general. A female. As oh. a female in general. That was a friend of mine was gang raped. Um, a, an uncle of mine was murdered. It was a very, very violent time to be growing up in South Africa. A, a very good friend of mine described it as an entire generation of children who walked around with shoes that were too small. And she really used this mm. as a metaphor to describe how these uh, families would be separated where there were black areas and there were white areas. And so all of us, for example, had uh, someone who would come and work in our house but who would go back once a year to her children and spend 48 hours with her children with these two small shoes that she had taken as a gift, saving up for the full year in order to take for Christmas um, and then return back to these houses that they were working in. So from a very young age, I became interested in how people deal with or don't deal with difficulty and chaos and trauma in their lives. And of course, while that feels very different from us now sitting in a room in LA, yeah. of course, we live in a world that is complex and ever-changing and unpredictable, where life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. And so, yeah, I became very interested very early on in how people should deal with, could deal with emotions and thoughts in... Um, ways that help them to thrive and bring purpose to their lives. I remember uh, I was on a speaking tour in South Africa, and we were staying in Johannesburg at these people's home. I think he owned a bank or something. It's like gated community, tennis court, pool, etc. And white family. And this woman had grown up a couple of miles from Soweto, yeah. which is a million, two million people. Yeah. And she was in her 50s and had just recently gotten a tour of Soweto. And so this woman in her 50s had grown up a couple of miles yeah. away from a city of millions that she had never, ever set foot in. And then in her 50s, and I realize now, she was in her kitchen telling us this like trauma. I mean, she had tears like about yeah. what had been happening literally down the street. It, it was a really just traumatic and very difficult time because as you're growing up in the society, you have government-mandated segregation. And what that meant was that you were not allowed to be friends with a black South African. You were not allowed to go to a movie. You were not allowed to go to a bathroom that was across color lines. And so it was this very difficult time of growing up where 
any sentient, thinking, feeling person could not be immune from recognizing that this was not normal, this was not whole, and this was not part of a society that felt like it was a thriving, real right, right. Did you as a live. kid, so you as a kid were like, this is really messed up. I grew up, firstly, as one does when you grow up in something and you don't actually know that there's a different yeah, reality. Yeah, right. It's just how it is. So at first, I um, found this experience just normal because it was all that I'd known. And then what happened is we had a a, a maid, a nanny, and almost every single yeah. white South African family had a, a maid. and. I had this woman who was in my life, her name was Anna, and she was absolutely remarkable. She was there for me with every grazed knee, with every heartache, with every rejection that I had at school, just any difficulty. She was like a surrogate mother to me. And it slowly dawned on me that this woman who was my surrogate mother was not able to be a mother to her own children the situation that I described a few minutes ago, that her children were not able to live on the same premises as her. So she would work in our house. She would sleep in a room that was in a room outside of our house. This was normal in South Africa. And yet her children lived hours and hours away. And she would go back once a year over Christmas for 48 hours. So, yeah, over time, I started to just become so um, brokenhearted by this situation and by this woman that I loved who was not, not able to give and um, experience the yeah. love of her own children. And then, you know, when I was uh, 15 years old, I became much more active around this is not okay, this is not right. Um, a, an example that I had was a friend of mine and I, we developed this youth group, which was literally a every Saturday afternoon, people coming over blacks and whites for tea and conversation. And just to give you some idea, the level of paranoia was such that the South African security police um, cased out no the way. house... Um, tapped the phones and basically because we were committing a crime you were not allowed to at that time have more than two people in a room it was considered criminal that you would likely be plotting treason against the government so this was the the time that I grew up in but really to go back to your question of what is it that drove my interest I was very interested from an early age in the idea of emotions and thoughts and how we navigate a difficult world and often a difficult life. And then when I was 15 years old, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer and was given months to live. And it was just so fascinating because on the one hand, I had so many people who would come to us and come to our family and say things like, it'll be okay. Just have faith. Everything will be fine. Um, it'll be. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. And yet it wasn't. My father was dying, and then months later, dead. And I had this remarkable English teacher, who invited us to keep journals, and so began the secret, silent correspondence with this amazing woman who every day I would write and she would respond. And what I realized after my dad's death was it was that. It was the showing up to my emotions. It was the moving into a space with myself that was honest and compassionate and authentic and real that ultimately helped me to be resilient and to move through that experience. And that the other narrative of just be positive, everything will be okay, actually was counterproductive oh my to God. my resilience. I have so many questions about that. Go for when, it. <laughs> when we get to my notes about your notes. Okay, Because of your... It. Okay, so, so we have to stick to the narrative because I, I want to know how you first got to this phrase emotional agility, but then I have a bunch of questions about the think positive because you say some things in here that are just... Okay, so... Pause. Pause. So then you go to university thinking, I'm going to study psychology? Yes. 
so I, I had this experience with this teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> <coughs> so I had this experience with this teacher, which was this remarkable, her showing up to me and me showing up to myself. Yes. And this started to pique my interest both in psychology in general, but more specifically in emotions, that we live in a narrative that is effectively avoidant. We live in a narrative that effectively says, we all die, but let's not think about it. Um, People get sick, but let's just be positive. And so much of the conversation around us is essentially around positive thinking and it'll be okay. Let's just have a good way of being. And I became really interested in these ideas. I realized in myself that being honest and authentic and compassionate and true to my inner experience had helped me. And I wanted to do research and work that started to delve into these ideas in a more robust and evidence-based way. And so university, <laughs> then doctorate work, and you just keep going in this, just farther well, and farther yeah, and farther. Yeah, I mean, like everyone, and I don't, I don't put these few things in the book, but um, <laughs> went off to university, dropped out of university, um, then went back to university, and really started to so explore these ideas. So I did a. Um, degree in psychology and then a master's in psychology and then another master's in psychology and then a PhD in psychology, all the while being really interested in these key questions. The key question being this, what does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions and the stories that we tell ourselves Mm -hmm. that help us to thrive in the world? Because what's fascinating is our thoughts, our emotions and our stories the way we deal with that stuff, that messy stuff internally, drives everything. It drives the careers we put our hands up for, the relationships we're in and how we interact with people in those relationships, how we parent, really every facet of how we love, live and lead is driven by our internal thoughts, emotions and stories and the relationship that we have with them. And that was what I wanted to explore in my work and then in my book. So when did this phrase, emotional agility, when did you first start to work with this idea? When did you first come up with this phrase? When did this start to become a cohesive thing that became the article, that became the book, yes, that became the... Yes, yes. So many years ago, probably about uh, 10 to 15 years ago, in my work, in my research on emotions, I started to recognize that so often with emotions, we get very stuck in the ways that we experience them. So we say things like, um, I only do positive emotions. Or we even tell our children, you know, we don't do negative emotions around here. When you're sad, go to your room and come out with a smile on your face. So what I started to recognize is that as individuals, often we feel comfortable with only particular kinds of emotions. Um, But in truth, if you think about us as human beings, our emotions have evolved to help us in the world, uh, to help us to signal to ourselves and to other people about how we're doing and how we're being in the world. And so I started to recognize that there's a real need for us as humans to be able to be agile with our emotions, to not just be stuck in one way of being or in there being a right or a wrong emotion, but rather recognizing that with our emotions come gifts. Um, I might not, for example, like experiencing guilt, but often when I experience guilt, what it's saying to me is that there's some dissonance between what I am doing every day and what's important to me. So for example, if I feel guilt that I'm not spending enough time with my children, that is a beacon to something that I care about. It's a signpost saying to me that there's this thing that's important to you and it's worth looking into and and recognizing that beneath that emotion, there may be something useful to you. So what I started to do probably about 10 to 15 years ago is really recognize that while we live in a world that tells us we should be positive, that actually all of our emotions if we can enter into the space with them, provide value to us. They provide learning and they help us to discern our 
sense of purpose and our sense of meaning in the world. So I started to become, interest, become interested in this idea and become interested in the thoughts that go along with this. And then, um, I want to say probably about uh, five or six years ago, I started to work on this idea really as it relates to leadership. Um, so many leaders were coming to me saying, life is complex, everything's going wrong in our organization, things are changing all the time, and of course that's you know the future of our society as it exists. And what I recognized again is that when we get stuck into a way of being and thinking, we are being inagile. If we can enter into a space where we are able to recognize our thoughts and emotions for what they are, thoughts and emotions, data, not directions, then we are able to, underneath that, get a sense of what is important to me here. How do I want to act in a way that is congruent with my values and how can I move forward to help me to bring those parts of myself to the way I am on the ground? Oh, I love it. Because you think about fear and there's all of this like, no fear, we don't do fear, we're scared. Of, but, but in terms of evo human evolution, we're only here because fear kept us alive. Fear is one of it's like the... your friend. <laughs> fear is one of the most critical human emotions. Sadness. We don't experience emotions about things that we don't care about. Um, if I get really angry because I feel that I've been treated unjustly at work, it's telling me that justice and equity are important to me. If I feel guilty because I'm not spending enough time with my children... It's a signpost that being connected and present with my kids is really important. If I'm feeling fearful, it's a sign to me that I am experiencing some level of threat. It might be threat around my job or it might be, but I'm experiencing some level of threat. These emotions are critical to us. And so if we can end any struggle that we have with whether we should or shouldn't feel something, I shouldn't feel fear, and instead, end the struggle by dropping the rope. Recognize that your fear is a naturally evolved human emotion and that we don't actually get to conquer fear. One of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea that courage is not an absence of fear. Fear is normal. Courage is not an absence of fear. Courage is fear walking. Courage is noticing your fear, recognizing yes. your fear, I love it. and moving towards what is important to you. I love it. Because oftentimes families, tribes, marriages, institutions, communities have uh, uh, usually unwritten, these are emotions that are acceptable to talk about, these we don't. Yeah, we overvalue, we overvalue the idea that I should be positive all the time. And yet, you know, one of the things that I experienced when my dad was dying is that a foreboding sense of regret, like the knowledge that I was going to regret lost time with my father and moving into that space allowed me to be with him in those precious last months. A friend of mine described this who was actually dying of stage four breast cancer, a friend of mine described this as the tyranny of positivity. She said to me, everyone tells you if you just positive, everything will be fine. And she said to me, you know, Susan, if it was just a case of being positive, the friends in my stage four breast cancer support group would be alive today. They are and they were the most positive people that I knew. And by everyone telling me that I need to be positive all the time, what it does is it makes me feel culpable in my own death. That somehow I wasn't positive wasn't enough. Positive. Yeah, right. And therefore I died. And she said to me, the other thing that it does is it takes away from the ability for me to be authentic in my difficulty. I'm trying so hard to be positive that I'm not actually able to have the real conversations with the people that I love. So, yeah, uh, I, I, think, I think the narrative is, is a narrative that doesn't serve us. Um, fascinatingly, by 2030, the World Health Organization predicts by 2030 that depression, 
not heart disease, not cancer, not diabetes, depression will be the single leading cause of disability globally. So outstripping all of the traditional baddies, depression will be the leading cause of disability globally. We live in a world that is complex and forever changing. And I think that the only way that we develop resilience and develop the capability to be in the world as it is, not as we wish it to be, but as it is, is by being able to get with, be with, and develop a competence and comfort with all emotions, including the difficult ones. You, uh, a couple minutes ago, referred to emotions are data, not directions. Yes. So what I mean by this is that emotions are important. Um, underneath our emotions, underneath our sadness, our guilt, our fear, our anxiety, are often signposts to things that we care about. So they are data. But they are not directions. Because I feel guilty doesn't mean that I'm a terrible mother. Uh, because I feel wronged doesn't mean that I have been wronged. So what I describe in emotional agility is how we can, in very practical ways, both show up to our emotions in ways that are curious and compassionate and um, honest with ourselves, but also to create a healthy distance where we recognize that our emotions are not directions. They're not telling us what to do. Our emotions don't get to decide what we do. Our thoughts don't get to decide what we do. We get to decide what we do. Our values, the other parts of ourselves that we bring to the table. Ah, oh, that's just... Phew. Oh, my word. Everybody, so good. Now, um, I, had the, I literally just started writing down phrases... Go for it. ...and concepts that you, uh, and I love how you have like three or four studies for every concept that are just so good. The first one, I'm um, opening up space. Yes. And and can you talk about this idea of how you respond to things and almost like this gap between whatever it is, what it evokes within you and how you respond to yeah. it and this gap opening up, which I found fascinating. Absolutely. So... A personal story first, actually one that didn't make it into the book, but I feel I want to tell you, which relates exactly to this, is one of the things I didn't talk about in the book because it was too painful for me to really talk about was when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, um, he knew he was going to die. And he had been paying life insurance for many, many years. And he started to develop this... Um, in his terror and trauma, this idea that somehow having life insurance was a sign that he didn't have enough faith. And was he a re like was that a religious? It was, was he a religious it was man? Religious, but it was also it was also this um, desperation to live. This yeah. like my thoughts are my reality, and somehow, you know, by having life insurance, it means that I've got this like negative thinking, and it means that I'm not going to heal myself and. So he started to become almost in this terror and trauma that he was experiencing, which, which is a common experience for people who are facing into their own death. He became obsessed with this idea that having life insurance was a sign that he didn't have enough faith. And so months before he died, and knowing that he was going to die, he cancelled his life insurance, leaving my family destitute, um, effectively, in, in a huge amount of debt. And so what you start seeing here, using that as an example, but we see it in our everyday life, is emotional inagility. The idea that um, my thoughts are fact. So I'm upset, uh, my husband's starting in on the finances, therefore I'm going to leave the room. Or I feel undermined in this meeting, Therefore, I may as well shut up. Therefore, I'm going to shut up. So what you start seeing here is um, no space between your stimulus and your response. No space between your thought and your response. So to get back to your question, this creation of the space, one of the best ways that I can describe it is Viktor Frankl. So Viktor Frankl, who survived the Nazi death camps, 
uh, really described this idea in his, you know, beautiful, beautiful writing. This. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that comes our growth and freedom. When we are being emotionally inagile, we are using our thoughts and emotions as fact. I feel this, therefore. What emotional agility is, as I describe in this book, is it's the ability to face into your thoughts and emotions in ways that are curious and compassionate, but to also be able to create space in those where you recognize that there are other parts of you that you can bring to the surface in your relationship, in the way you parent, in your job. And that if we can cultivate the ability to notice our thoughts and emotions for what they are, thoughts and emotions, not facts, not directions, then in that we cultivate such a beautiful human capability. And that is to bring ourselves in wholeness and fullness and in a values-based way to our everyday interaction. So that is the creation of the space. Uh, uh, it's just, yeah, it's so powerful. I, um, you know, in Buddhism, we talk about non-judgmental observance. Do you in your work have mystics, sages, spiritual teachers saying to you, by the way, in our tradition, we've been talking about this for 3,000 years. Is that I've, an occurrence that happens? Because oftentimes in the book, you'd be like, this study says this, and I'll think, wow, that reminds me of a line from the Psalms. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, well, well, I mean, firstly, you know, what's, what's really fascinating about this is that, of course, our emotions and our thoughts have existed since yes. human, human yeah. beings have existed. And so this, yeah, I've had people come to me and say, you know, where are you in your spiritual journey? Because so oh, really? much of what you talk about is this almost spiritual way of being. Um, I, you know, what I am doing in emotional agility is, so some of my work does draw on those traditions. Yes. But really trying to bring to it the, the wisdom of those traditions alongside the science yes. and the yeah. evidence of emotions and actually what helps us and what doesn't. And I know for certain that this only happiness is what counts and let's all chase happiness and let's all chase positivity. I can say for certain that this is undermining our resilience as a society yes. and it's yes. undermining our children's resilience. And I will put my hand to that I feel that we will not be able to cultivate um, a full, whole, resilient way of being in the world, especially in a chaotic world that Absolutely. is unpredictable Absolutely. unless we move away from this narrative. Absolutely. I literally, when people ask, how do you be happy? How do you find meaning? Have you? I now, all those sorts of questions, I begin with, well, let's talk about suffering. Let's start with brokenness, pain, loss, fear, betrayal. Let's start there because we might actually find some joy, but we're going to have to go through it. We can't go around it. Yeah. Um, okay. You, you have like this, I mean, it's connected with the, the flow, but you talk about multitasking. Yes. Being destructive. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, what I really talk about in the book is how we move into spaces where we are in agile. So as human beings, how we love to put things in boxes, how we, you know, love to kind of be on the go and this whole idea of multitasking. And really, you know, what's really fascinating is the research shows that when we multitask, it's the equivalent to drunk driving, that it doesn't <laughs> work. And what it does is it creates huge amounts of uh, dissonance and ambiguity and difficulty for us and stops us from being able to actually be present and connected and thoughtful in ways that are meaningful. Um, now, I know, for example, that mindfulness is all the rage lately. You know, everyone's talking about mindfulness and I definitely talk about um, yes. mindfulness to some extent in the book. You know, what, what I'm not talking about is this idea that we have to be mindful in every single thing we do, like you take yeah. out the trash mindfully right. and brush our teeth mindfully. Um, 
but certainly, you know, so the brain, excuse me, the brain can't do that. The, the, we can't correct? do that. We we can't do that. But so much of our cognitive overload is um, subject to imposition through the world being actually a kind of messy, difficult world. And so sometimes what we have to do is we do have to bring ourselves into the space of the present, um, where instead of reacting, we are responding. We are making choices because we are tuned enough with what's going on inside of us, not distracted by all the stuff that's around us. And so we can create that space again. It's funny. There's a, a number of places in the book where, <coughs> like somebody, I've heard people over the years been like, well, you mean like multitasking? And I found myself saying, no, I, I don't mean like my, <laughs> like, like you give such, but this was the first place where I heard somebody say like, no, it's actually not helpful. These thousands of things bouncing around in your brain and you just feeding them, um, which takes me to social media yes. because you talk about contrast effect yes yes uh, yes so you're gonna have to tell a bit on that please because I found that incredibly helpful well one of the things that I talk about in the book is how we are so subject to what I call social contagion and this is the idea that without us even realizing it we land up being influenced by the people around us one of the studies that I absolutely loved and that I quoted in the book was this Imagine you are on an airplane and you are trying to lose weight. Now, imagine your seat partner buys candy. What the research shows is that even if you don't know that person, you're not traveling with them, they're completely unknown to you. If someone next to you buys candy, your chance of buying candy increases 30%. <laughs> some so, guy from Ohio I've never met. Some guy from Ohio. So it I'm gets even more has scary. Has 30% more has 30%. So, and it gets even more scary. So, there are these large scale (laughs) epidemiological studies that show epidemiological. So, these are these large scale epidemiological studies. Yeah. So, these are these large scale public health studies where they literally, what they do is they track tens and twenties and 30,000 people and they look at behaviors and how behaviors change and morph. So, this is again where the social contagion gets really interesting. What the research shows is that if someone within your social network, you do not even need to know the person. They could be two or three degrees of separation from you. Someone in your social network puts on weight. Your chance of putting on weight increases significantly. If someone in your social network, you do not even need to know them. A friend of a friend of a friend. A friend of a friend of a friend gets divorced. It statistically increases your chance of getting divorced. Now, you might say, but how does this work? Because what happens is we end up having behaviors around us that become normalized. We've all experienced this. You get into an elevator. Everyone's looking at their phones. You take out your phone and you start looking. So what starts to happen is without us even realizing it, there are multiple behaviors that start being normalized simply by us being exposed to them. And social media is one of them. We look at people on social media. We see them being sexy, you know, in bikinis, on beaches. And we start comparing and contrasting and really wanting more of what we see around us and very often becoming less centered within our own values and centered in what's okay for me and what is my own why, what is my own heartbeat, what is my own importance here. And so one of the things that I talk about in emotional agility is how we become subject to social contagion and it's so powerful. But what the research again shows is that the very simple exercise of spending even 10 minutes thinking about what are my values? What is important to me? What is it that I really hold dear here? And really bringing those to the surface is protective of social contagion. And I can give you an example if that would be helpful. Imagine you are a first-generation college-goer. So, Everyone in your social circle has said, we don't go to college. 
but you try hard, you study, you finally make your way into college. And then what happens? You fail your first test, as all people do at some stage. What we know is that at that point, you are more likely to drop out. However, kids who have done a simple 10-minute exercise of thinking about why they're in college, why this is important to them, what their values are, are protective of that failure two and three years down the line. Knowing who you are and what you stand for is absolutely critical in terms of being able to bring yourself fully to the world. Um, ah, that's so profound. So Instagram, with its daily barrage of somebody's spinach breakfast burrito <laughs> and fantastic vacation and pictures of their spouse and how much they love them is how do you how, how do you think about that in terms of emotions well firstly we know that one of the most toxic effects that we see in psychology is comparing yourself to other people it's one of the most toxic things so Yes, you know, get motivation from others. Yes, get mentorship from others. But most of us don't do that. Most of us denigrate ourselves, lack self-compassion, and start saying, well, you know, this person's driving a fancy car. This person lives in a better house. Why don't I have that? And so they start cultivating instead of an openness and an orientation to growth Instead, the sense of competition and scarcity and not enough and I want more of something that I can't have. So, so social comparison is absolutely toxic. Um, that doesn't mean that you need to, you know, not go anywhere near Facebook or no, go anywhere near social media. But again, knowing why you go to social media, in other words, what is it that might be truly important to you? You know, connecting with special friends is something to be yeah. aware of. Knowing what your values are, these kinds of things help us in, again, a world and a society that can take us off course so easily. Ah, uh, Okay, well, that leads me to, um, I have to read you a sentence from the book. Read it to me. Go for it. it. It's a, um, one of the greatest human triumphs is to choose to make room in our hearts for both the joy and the pain and to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. This means seeing feelings not as being good or bad, but as just being. Yes. Yes. From when all of us are little, we are subject to what are called display rules. These rules that are often unspoken about what emotions are okay and what emotions are not okay. Go to your room and come out when you've got a smile on your face. We don't do anger here. Um, happiness is all that matters. And so we start developing a sense of ourselves and these beautiful human emotions as being good or bad rather than just they are, they are. And so if we can instead, and I talk about this in very practical ways in emotional agility, if we can instead of judging our emotions as being good or bad, and rather make room in our hearts for the emotion because this is what it is, we free ourselves in such incredible mm -hmm. ways. Instead of struggling internally with whether we should or shouldn't feel something, whether something's good or bad, we just enter into the space that is there and we're able to work within that space. Oh, you, uh, and continuing on that same paragraph, what we really need to do though is also what is most simple and obvious, nothing. I was literally reading this sentence like, it, what we really need to do is the most simple and obvious. I was like, oh, this is going to be good. And then you, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah. And that is to just welcome these inner experiences, breathe into them, and learn their contours without racing for the exits. 
Yes. That's yes. like just great. That's good. That's just like great writing. Thank you. Well done. That like that's just a great Thank sentence. Thank you. Thank you. I just good writing to me is just that right there is uh, like well, that's like music uh, on the page. I, I agonized over over that because I, Oh, did you really? I did, of course I did. And I welcomed the agony. <laughs> <laughs> because because it is so uh, we we live in a world where we feel we can control everything. You know, we don't like our car, we can go buy a new car. We don't like our house, we can, you know, we don't like our wife, let's get divorced. So, so much of, again, our experience of ourselves is that we should try to control everything. And what we start to try to do is to control our thoughts and emotions. I shouldn't feel this. I shouldn't think this. Um, I see this so much in my work where people try to push their emotions aside. I'm upset with my boss, but I'm just not going to go there. Or I'm really angry, but I'm just not going to say anything. Now, that doesn't mean because you feel something you should, but so much of the time we jostle or hustle with our emotions and thoughts. And what I'm suggesting is the opposite. Nothing. Welcoming, willingness, it is what it is. It's not bad. It's not good. It just is. I've often thought how the uh, we've had 300 years of mastery from the Enlightenment, which was here's how to master yeah. creation, here's how to, and then master machines, and then master technology, and then to stand over it, to exert power over it, to master, people speak of mastering their emotions, which is very different than entering into the experience of something, which is very, very, very different it's, posture towards life. It's very different, and I do think... As someone who works with a lot of organizations, I do think that part of this conversation actually almost comes from this industrial age um, way of being where in organizations, so often an organization will say something like, we want people to believe these values. Let's tell them to believe them and then they'll believe them. You know, there's this orientation towards people that is very, I will master you and mechanistic. We're going to tell you what to believe and then you'll come out the other end believing what we've told you yes. to believe. And it's this orientation that is so at odds with the humanity of humanity. Ah, oh, this. Okay, and then you have this. When you're emotionally agile, you don't waste energy wrestling with your impulses. Again, it just is we can enter into a space where we are compassionate towards ourselves, where we are kind, where we are curious, and where we can make decisions about how we want to move forward, not based on the emotion, but based on how we want to be and who we want to be in this particular situation. Who do I want to be in this interaction with my husband? Who do I want to be in this interaction with my child, regardless of what my emotions and thoughts are telling me. So we move into a completely different realm. You know, um, I was trained as a pastor where you, you know, you just, you love everybody. You're like the shepherd. Um, I used, literally had a joke with my, with Kristen, my wife, about that, like my life motto was, I love everybody and you're next. Because she'd always <laughs> joke, like you just make friends with every, like this sort of like, hey. <laughs> Uh, and so it was like it was like there was just a big party. I'm ho I'm hosting a party, um, and so we had started this church. And I was I was like, yeah, like mastery. You're you're positive. You're telling people we can yeah. do it. We're so glad you're here. And there was this guy who was like a leader in the church. Who I just he was just like human sandpaper. Like I just, just despised him. him. He was awful. And, but like I am, you know, it's my brother. I'm supposed to love him. All this sort of at the time, like religious sort of talk. Um, and I had stumbled into the Psalms in the middle of the Bible, these ancient prayers, which were like, crush my enemy. You know what? Crush my enemy's kids. No, crush my enemy's kids and his kids' friends. You know, crush their heads with rocks. It's like lists of horrible things to and be done to your enemies. And take their eyes out. Yeah. And, and while you're at it, hot acid and take their eyes out. And hang them up. Um, and I had just stumbled across somebody somewhere saying the, these prayers appear to be primitive and barbaric, but they're actually very healthy because you, 
give expression to all the things within you and you're far less likely to act on those impulses. And it opened up this, it's like a whole horizon opened up. And so I would um, go running in the morning and I would start out on my run and I would start listing all of the terrible things I wanted to have happen to this man. And it was literally like I could go for like three miles at first. <laughs> and it was an inexhaustible yeah. bucket yes. of uh, despicable emotions I had towards this man. And gradually, it took a while. It's like I ran them out of my system. Well, they lose their power. You know, yes. that's one of the they things... Began one of the things that I talk about in emotional agility, and this actually goes back to the experience that I had with this teacher, is what's fascinating is when we try to push our emotions aside or push our thoughts aside, I shouldn't think that, I sh it's not allowed, there's this absolutely fascinating psychological effect which is called amplification. So we've all experienced this. Amplification is you are on diet and you are not allowed to think of chocolate cake. What happens? You dream of chocolate cake. Yes. We know that when people try to push thoughts and emotions aside, they will come back sometimes 40 times in a minute, some experiments show. So there's this... <laughs> wait, wait, 40 times 40 a minute. 40 times in a minute, in a minute. Don't think about chocolate cake. Don't, Don't think about, think chocolate, about cake. chocolate cake. And do a little slash on a piece of paper every time you think about chocolate cake. I'm going to time you. And in a minute, people will think about it 40 times. When we try to push things aside, it actually takes cognitive resources. So what starts to happen is the very thing we're trying to push aside actually starts to surface. Because the is, brain has got it on, it's on the brain. It's, it's on the brain, but you're actually trying to use resources to push that thought aside. So you've got limited resources to actually control and manage yourself, which is why when you are sitting around the Thanksgiving table and you have promised yourself that you are really, really angry with your brother-in-law, but you are not going to say anything about the thing that you are angry about, it slips out because we have limited cognitive resources, which is again why I talk about this idea of don't push aside, don't what I call bottle Instead, yeah. just notice it for what it is. And again, coming back to the what this English teacher did with me when my father was dying, is she showed me the power of when you show up to your story and you write through your story and you notice your story, what it does is it allows your story to be integrated in a way that is very healthy. And when we see people who've gone through trauma or who really struggling with difficult experiences, we know that those people who don't think about it, don't oh, go there, wow. actually do worse over time. Because the brain is basically saying, I only, got, I only got so much horsepower here. And if you're asking me not to think about that or to suppress that or deny that, okay, then I'm going to give a, I'm going to be, I'm exhausted because I'm spending all this energy yeah. on that. Now you want me to think about this. And the Oh. Isn't science really amazing? Science is fantastic. <laughs> science is, you know, Martha Beck, who studied at Harvard, yes, wrote a book about food. It's almost like an anti-diet book. Where she, one of her central thesis, sort of at the beginning, is like diet books are generally fail, but for this exact, she called it the polar bear effect, I think. Yeah. But essentially, took this exact science yeah. and said the thing that you're trying to skip meals and deny how badly you want the chocolate cake is actually why you're gaining yeah. weight. Yes. And all those shows where the people like dramatically lose all that weight and that incredible repression, evolutionarily, you're actually working against. Yes. Now your brain is in deprivation mode and it's going to start storing actually all of Absolutely. this. Absolutely. I mean, fasc oh. a, a fascinating study was done recently. We had spoken earlier about being willing to experience your impulses, your thoughts, your emotions. So one study that was done recently on this exact topic asked people who were really struggling with losing weight um, and, and were, were actually, you know, having kind of real issues around this to walk around with a box of chocolates in their purse. <laughs> but half the group was instructed to not think about the chocolates and the other half of the group was instructed that when they thought about the chocolates to just notice their thought in a willing, accepting way and to recognize that when you're trying to lose weight, 
give up smoking, you know, do these difficult things that it is difficult and there's no shame in that difficulty. And what the study showed is that people who were able to be open and willing and accepting of their inner selves ate less chocolate. They were marked secretly to see that there were no replacements that went through, but they ate less chocolate, that there's this very powerful effect that when you open yourself up to yourself, yes, it is freeing. Oh, so uh, there's, we can, I can seriously, I have five more hours of questions, but I have a couple more things I want to cover. Go for it. The story about the hotel workers and exercise. Yes. And what they were told. This story seriously blew my mind. It's one it's a classic example of what you do here in your work is you give me the science and data and you string together a bunch of things that I kind of knew was true. I always say the best writing puts in language what you knew was true. You just have all this data and studies that show me how really true it is. But this, can you... Yeah. For people. Yes, absolutely. They're going to get the book anyway, but let's at least tell yes. them about the hotel so, workers. So just to preface this, what I talk about in the book is this four-part process around emotional agility, showing up, which is being able to be open to your thoughts and emotions in effective ways, stepping out, which is this idea of creating distance, walking your why, the focus on values. Values, yeah. And then moving on. And moving on is really very practically, how do you cultivate a mindset motivations and habits that actually help you in a day-to-day way live your life effectively in ways, again, that are values congruent. So one of the things that I talk about, and this is the hotel study, is how having your heart and your mind in the place of openness, openness to change, openness to the world is so powerful. So what was done in the study is this. There were two groups of hotel workers. And these are cleaners in a hotel who effectively are spending hours and hours and hours every single day making beds, bending, lifting, and doing extremely difficult exercise. Now, what the researchers were looking at, this was Aaliyah Crum from Yale University, is she was trying to look at what would happen if you altered people's expectations. So most of these hotel workers, if you said to them, do you get enough exercise? You know, are you healthy? Most of them said no. We have, you know, high fat diets, high salt, we don't do any exercise. And so, no, we are not actually living in a healthy way. So what she tried to do is shift one simple thing. The control group didn't have any intervention. The experimental group had one change, and it was this. The hotel workers were told that the exercise that they did every day in the as course part of their, of their normal work <laughs> – was exactly and in fact exceeded the Surgeon General's requirements for healthy living. So all that happened is they created these bulletin boards, they posted this information on in this particular hotel for these particular hotel workers. And of course, again, the control group didn't get any change. So all they're doing is they're shifting people's perceptions around are you actually doing exercise or aren't you? And when they went back after this intervention, what they found is that the hotel workers who were told that they actually were doing exercise and that their exercise counted and mattered had actually statistically and significantly lost weight, had lower (laughs) levels of blood pressure. And this is really subtle. I mean, this is not, this is effectively this power of how when you shift your perception around an openness to maybe things are okay, or maybe what I'm doing is okay here, not in a way that's fooling yourself, but but where you opening yourself up to an alternative way of growth and change, how powerful it can be. Now, what's likely is this is not magic. It's not that these people magically lost weight. 
what's likely is that they probably started to engage in very subtle changes in behavior. And one of the things that I talk about in emotional agility is how so often when we want to make change to our lives, we think about it in big terms. I've got to give up everything yeah. and go live in the country. Yeah. Whereas what I talk about is tiny tweaks. If I found we can that make small shifts, yeah. small shifts to how we are in our day-to-day lives in ways that our values aligned, it has enormous, enormous benefits. I found that part particularly resonant. You were, you were, when you talk about it's actually these tiny little shifts and tweaks that actually. It's tiny tweaks. And an example might be, you know, you, you, in your day to day life, your relationship is really important, but you've gotten into a habit where your partner comes home from work and you, you know, barely look up from your computer or barely look up from putting the food on the table. And so you, you love this person in theory, and maybe even in heart, but it's not being demonstrated in your day-to-day interactions. And so a tiny tweak might be, what is a small shift that we know compounds over time to create a very different movie? And for me, it might be to actively get up and engage with that person in an honest, honest way when they come through the door. That's a tiny tweak, but it's powerful. Okay, well... Friends, the book um, is Emotional Agility. Starts with an article. I mean, it's years and years of work. Then you write an article. The article explodes. Yes. How long from when the article came out till then Then you wrote that, took the article and turned it into the book? Did that take a while? Yes. So the article came out in um, 2013. I wrote an article actually for the Harvard Business Review called Emotional Agility, how leaders deal with difficult thoughts and emotions, which was specifically focused on the workplace. And that article was named a management idea of the year. But from that, I had already been working in this field, you know, very broadly in non-organizational contexts. And there was lots, of course, that didn't make it into the article that I then expanded on. And so it took me two years from that time. Did it really? To to write the book. It was a labor of love. You know, this was not a, a... quickly written, you know, over a period of, of months book. It was a labor of love. I feel it because you're you're just drawing on such a broad, your own story, all these, it's it's got so much depth to it. And, and there's more books coming, I assume. There will Please, be. One of, yeah, one of the things that has connected most with people is an article that I wrote uh, or that I was actually interviewed for called Teaching Your Child Emotional Agility, which was for the New York Times that went viral. And it was really about how these skills apply in raising children. And I've got a chapter on it in the emotional agility. Going through the book, I was like, oh, so much of this is how you how to parent. And then at the end, I was like, oh wow, you you actually just spell that out there. Um, underneath it all, it's all very inspiring to me, but you dropped out of college and then eventually got two masters and a PhD and you're at Harvard. So I think that's just inspiring alone <laughs> for everybody who's ever dropped out of college. Well, that I've that you are the first person that I've actually told that in any podcast. So you should be <laughs> Yeah, I, I went I went to college at, this was about eighteen months after my dad had died and I went with these big ideas and dreams. Yeah. And um realized very soon after that I was actually still you know, being being in the context that I was, that it was just very, it was the wrong time for me to be at college. I was processing my dad's death. There was a lot going on. And so I, again, I think showed up to that in myself yes. and recognized that that wasn't the time for me. And so became a secretary, a receptionist, became a 90 word a minute shorthand tutor. And Ultimately, uh, went back to study. When the time was right. When the time was right. And you didn't look back. It's so, uh, your work is so inspiring to me. Can people get a hold, how how do people get a hold of you? Can they, like, if you want to, because you consult, you come help organizations, people, coaching, all this. Yeah. So, so firstly, the the book is Emotional Agility. For people who are interested in, uh, one of the things that I've done is I've developed a free quiz which I've had about 40,000 people take right now, Whoa. which is really a very short, it's five minutes, and it asks a couple of questions about how you 
deal with your thoughts and emotions and your values. And then from that, you actually get a free 10-page PDF report that a lot of people have just found very oh. valuable. So that, if people are interested, is at my website, which is uh, www.susandavid.com forward slash <laughs> quiz. Quiz. Forward oh. slash learn. <laughs> Can we? Okay, that's fine. Learn or they'll, they'll find it. Okay. Learn, quiz. <laughs> it's on, is it on your website? It's on my website. Uh, yeah, we'll find it. SusanDavid.com forward slash learn. <laughs> it's forward slash learn. Can I say that again? You're great. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. And then uh, and then get a hold of you there. It's this is it's really really profound. Thank I, you. I really appreciate what you're doing. Keep going. Thank you for having me. Thank you for talking. And it's just been a pleasure to connect. I'm so grateful that we that we emailed. It's great. It's great. Grace and peace, my friends. <laughs>